If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When things stood still like this and we in Asia hypnotised ourselves into the belief that it could never by any possibility be otherwise, Japan rose from her dreams and in giant strides left centuries of inaction behind, overtaking the present time in its foremost achievement. This has broken the spell under which we lay in torpor for ages, taking it to be the normal condition of certain races living in certain geographical limits. We forgot that in Asia, great kingdoms were founded. Philosophy, science, arts, and literatures flourished, and all the great religions of the world had their cradles. It's an unusual start to the program. Hello. It's <laughs> Welcome a good one, to though. Empire. It's a goodie. I love that quote. Yeah. Well, I mean, tell us about the quote because it is a powerful, powerful quote. Who did it? So, this is Rabindranath Tagore writing about Japanese nationalism and the rise of Japan in 1916, after the events of the Russo-Japanese War. And it is a moment when, you know, you, when you're looking back at history, you can see certain points when the tides change. It's impossible to see it at the time. But looking back, you can see them. And, and if, in a sense, the beginning of the colonial period can be dated to Vasco da Gama landing in Calicut or whichever date you want to take, this one, 1905, in many ways marks the point which the Western advance over Asia reaches its highest point and then begins to roll back. What the Scots call the spring tide and the Nipah tide. Yeah. Uh, and um, this is the moment that... Asia realizes that it can defeat Europe, can defeat the West, that it is a place with its own astonishing history, its own empires, its own power, that it is the center of science and maths and, and, and religion, as Tagore said in that quote. And here we are now in the early 21st century with China, the second power, economic power on earth, India about to overtake Germany and Japan in the next decade to become the third economic power in the world. And we're in a completely different world from that 1905 moment. But going back here, here is the moment that the tide changes and Europe begins to recede and Asia begins to rise. Yeah, and it's very interesting that it is really not talked about here in the West and perhaps <laughs> there's a reason. I mean, it's, it's had a seismic effect on the way in which Asian countries think of themselves, but is hardly spoken about at all in the West. And we have such a great guest to talk us through. The man on the subject. Pankaj Mishra, author from The Ruins of Empire, The Revolt Against the West and The Remaking of Asia. Pankaj, we're so delighted to have you on. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. And delighted to be with you anytime, really. 
I, sh- I should say Pankaj is not a man that always accepts invitations. I've been trying to bully Pankaj for many years to come to my literary festival, and he's turned me down more often than anyone else. So I'm particularly pleased to get him on this. Wow. And he, he heard <laughs> yeah. I was here. I mean, it was, yeah, I, it was your, it was it was your it. reputation that did it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Pankaj, it is true to say that this is a, a tale of two perceptions, because whereas in Asia, this is a big deal, this is a turning of a chapter. But in the West, I mean, it's 1905 doesn't mean very much at all. It's true. I mean, you know, I actually wrote this book because um, I was astonished by this great disparity between historical narratives, you know, the narrative in, in Europe and America, in which the big events of the 20th century are the two European civil wars, the two world wars, and then, of course, uh, the great struggle against Soviet communism. Uh, of course, uh, you know, great historical traumas like the Holocaust or what Stalin did to various peoples in Russia's borderlands and indeed to his own people. So these were the big events and these were the events to which entire libraries were devoted or, you know, if you walk into a bookstore, uh, a majority of the history books would be on these subjects. And this was nothing about the experiences, perspectives of a vast majority of the world's population, which, as we know, lives in Asia and Africa. Uh, What were the events that were more important to them, and indeed, actually, when you think about the present, also more important to the world we inhabit today, and as Willie pointed out, the world we are going to inhabit very soon in the next few few decades. And that's where 1905 and this extraordinary battle between Russia and Japan becomes absolutely crucial. Do you want to just give us, before we go a deep dive, Pankaj, what happened in 1905? What was this central event? So what happened was that, you know, there were there were sort of clashes between Russia and Japan several years leading up to 1905. But in 1904, kind of full-scale uh, warlike situation developed. And there were some major battles, and this was a sort of concluding battle, the Battle of Tsushima, where Russia suffered a decisive defeat. And this was really the first time that a major European power with, you know, modern weapons had been defeated by an Asian power. And the news really spread around the world very rapidly and impacted a whole range of people from from Gandhi, from Nehru to Sun Yat-sen, the Chinese nationalist, uh, nationalists in Turkey, in, in Egypt, in Indonesia, just everywhere. And, and sort of, you know, this became, the victory of Japan became a kind of demonstration of what Asian nations, Asian countries that had been dominated, bullied, humiliated by European powers, what they could do to regain their dignity and self-respect and sovereignty. Yeah, I mean, if you know, we may not hear about it now in the West, but certainly at the time, those who were in charge knew how dangerous this message was. I mean, I just like to quote something, and it's something that you you yourself have used. But it's Lord Curzon, who anyone who's familiar with this podcast will know very, very well, the Viceroy of India. So he notes that 1905, he says, the reverberations of that victory have gone like a thunderclap through the whispering galleries of the East. And he knows that this is going to embolden people who have not been happy to be ruled by colonial powers. Far from it. (laughs) Not happy at all, but have somehow, I don't know, felt that they can't do anything about it, it, internalized it, you know, maybe not thought that anything better would be coming their way. And suddenly in this moment, 11 Russian battleships are sunk in a single day and the world changes. 
It really does. And I think, you know, I mean, for me, what was really important in this book was to focus on a particular experience uh, of the 19th century for a lot of countries that were once very great and powerful, who had very strong memories of their power and glory in the past, uh, such as the Chinese, the Japanese, of course, Indians. And for them, the 19th century really was a long traumatic period of endless humiliation. It started, of course, early for for the Indians. Mm. There wasn't much of a European presence in China until late in the 19th century. And of course, in Japan too, it was the second half of the 19th century. Pankaj, you mentioned that this was something that surprised you when you came to England and to Europe to find that this was an event that was not known. Was this something that you were taught about when you grew up in India? Was this something that everyone knew? I can't actually remember the time when I first heard about this, uh, which perhaps just goes on to show that this was very much part of, you know, the air you you breathe, the, the water you drank. It was very much, you know, part of the kind of historical narrative you grew up with. So I certainly knew about it before I'd read about it in, in a history textbook and also knew about Japan's influence on Indian nationalism. That was that was massive. Can we talk about Japan pre the battle. Yeah, let's go back to the to the beginning. Yeah, so so tell us. I mean, what was the situation in Japan like in the decades before it faces up to the Great Bear and defeats it? I mean, you know, Japan was one of the most isolated countries in the world uh, before the mid nineteenth century, and then, of course, the Europeans and the Americans broke into Japan and disturbed its centuries long solitude and started to order the Japanese around. They'd earlier kicked out the East India Company and the other Europeans, hadn't they? The Portuguese and the British had tried in the 17th century to make inroads and been shown the door very firmly. It was always extremely resistant, much, much more so than other Asian powers to European and American encroachments. But in the 19th century, they started to succumb. And out of this experience of defeat, humiliation, being bullied around by people they considered barbarians. I mean, you know, they looked down upon these, these, these sort of Americans coming in and the Europeans coming in and had only complete contempt for them. So out of this experience, they started to modernize their country, started to adopt Western methods, political institutions, economic policies that they had seen in Europe and elsewhere. They sent out people to Europe and America to learn from Western countries and sort of apply, you know, some of those some of those methods, some of those technologies back in Japan. So Japan underwent a very rapid process of modernization in the late 19th century. From being this sort of isolated, relatively poor country, it became very quickly a heavily industrialized country with a very modern military. Pankaj, how far does the Emperor Meiji take responsibility for this turnaround? Can we can we attribute to him the beginnings of this? 1860s? Uh, definitely. I think that, you know, the so-called sort of Meiji restoration, whereby, you know, the sort of this new regime managed to reconcile various warring, conflicting aspects of Japanese society and sort of, in a way, channel all the energies that were then released into the work of national reconstruction. So that was the, you know, that was a sort of big project. And, and replacing a kind of feudal shogunate with a constitutional monarchy. 
Exactly, exactly. Did he also, you know, in this moment of wanting to rebuild the Japanese identity, figure that Japan needed its own empire? I mean, how, how imperial were his ambitions? The thing is, I mean, I think if you've been bullied around by an empire and in a way felt extremely helpless, then through certain steps, logical steps, you come to the conclusion, and you know, they, they did come to the conclusion sort of late 19th century, that actually the only way to beat these other empires that are threatening us, are very likely to threaten us, is to have your own empire in your own backyard. And anyway, what are these barbarians doing in our neighborhood? We've got to throw them out at some point. So I think the germ of Japanese militarism, and we saw you know, some of the more repellent aspects of it in the, 19th, in the 20th century, they were already there in the late 19th. And I think they were to express themselves far more strongly and virulently after the defeat of Russia in 1905. Right. And and just before, in the run-up to 1905, I mean, the other reason that Japan feels it can flex is because China is declining. China is in a terrible state in the in the 19th century. The century of humiliation now, they call it, don't they? Exactly, the century of humiliation. One setback, fiasco, failure after another. And there is really very little uh, the Chinese intelligentsia can do to arrest, to check this very rapid decline the country is is suffering. Not least because the British are selling vast quantities of opium via Hong Kong into China. So for the Japanese, looking at this big neighbor next to them, this is, you know, these are very easy picking. So the Japanese start to become greedy at this point. But, you know, there are many interesting aspects of the story. I mean, first of all, that so many Chinese, for instance, travel to Japan soon after 1905 to learn the secrets of Japanese power. Really? And these Chinese intellectuals turned out to be some of the most important in the intellectual history of modern China. Pankaj, is there any precedent for this in the historical relationship of China and Japan? Because in the periods of Chinese history that I know, you get Japanese intellectuals coming to China to learn about Buddhism and to learn at the feet of the Chinese. Is there any other period before this that the the Japanese have been lording it over the Chinese? Not really, because, you know, you didn't have modern communications or modern modes of transport. You couldn't have so many people traveling to Japan. So it was really only in the sort of late 19th century. There was a sort of influx of students. I mean, obviously, Japan was seen as a place with good educational institutions. So there were already quite a lot of Chinese students in Japan before 1905. But after 1905, the floodgates opened and a whole lot of people from China went to Japan. And not to mention, you know, people from Burma, people from Java, people from Vietnam, people from everywhere. Right. I mean, listen, at the risk of doing a Dalrymple. Let's not jump to post-1905. This is a thing <laughs> that William does all the time. Let's work, work towards it in a strict chronological fashion. Absolutely. As I'm here as the scary <laughs> poppins just to get everybody back in line. So we're not yet at 1905. I just want to talk a little bit more about the, the run-up to 1905, which of course we're going to go into in detail in a moment. But what is the relationship like between Russia and Japan at this time? Well, you know, Russia is an expansionist empire. And, you know, at some point in its sort of eastward expansion, it comes into conflict with Japan, not only with, not only with Japan, but also with, you know, all the major countries in, in the east. And, you know, there were a series of, as I said, there were a series of clashes uh, between the two countries, but never a kind of full-scale war of the kind that erupted in, in, in 1904. 
But you do get a, a full-scale war, though, with Korea, don't you? They land, the Japanese actually land on the peninsula and begin to start eating up chunks of Korea. Exactly. You know, they're very much in a kind of expansionist mode themselves, uh, because as I said, you know, they thought this is actually an empire is the best, best way to protect our hard-fought sovereignty and independence. But you have to remember, I mean, Russia is also trying to modernize. Russia is also trying desperately hard to match European power because it's you know constantly living in a state of paranoia about being attacked from the West and there is already you know too much too many historical precedents there. So it's trying to accumulate power of a different kind from the one it had previously. This is power that comes from having a modern economy and having a modern military. So both are expanding. Both Russia and Japan are looking beyond their borders to exert their their authority and their position in the world. I mean, to put it really crudely, who tweaks whose nose first? Exactly. That's that's what really basically happens is that you have two rapidly modernizing powers. One is modernizing much, much faster than the other because they've got the political system in place. And I'm speaking here of Japan. The other one is politically extremely backward, a fact that is a source of great despair for a whole lot of Russians, a whole lot of Russian writers, intellectuals, thinkers, including, of course, the makers of the Russian Revolution. And 1905 is a moment where you know, they realized that, look, this system that we have with the czar in place, with this kind of, you know, despotic structure, we're not going to get anywhere. We need a revolution. So we have a revolution. There is a revolution in Russia in 1905. Unfortunately, you know, it doesn't quite do the work. So there is obviously another revolution in 1970. In fact, there are two revolutions in 1917. You know, I'm I'm the equivalent of the toddler, the annoying toddler at the back of the car that usually goes, are we there yet? Are we there? I'm just going to say, we're not there yet. We're not there <laughs> okay, yet. Okay. We're not there we're yet, work, Pankaj. We're working we're not there yet. Yet. So, so tell me the first time Still that in the Russia, 1890s. Yeah, so Russia and Japan are, are, are doing this square dance. They're, you know, sort of peacocking at each other. But they actually do start rubbing each other up the wrong way because Russian railways are, are damaged in the Boxer Rebellion in 1899. Russia then invades and occupies Manchuria in 1900. 100,000 troops uh, are sent to defend its investments. And so it is, I suppose, inevitable that there is going to be a collision course, right, William? Yes. And you get a major Japanese landing in Korea. You're getting now boots on the ground. And it's in this area that you're going to get the Japanese and the Russians facing off against each other. And Japan is looking to weaken Russia. It has intelligence operations and psychological warfare against the Russians. They're funding nationalist revolutionary movements across uh, Russia's European territories, places like Lithuania and Poland. I mean, it's extraordinary that a, a kingdom which has been so isolated for so long is now not only westernizing itself and, and modernizing its army and its navy and buying the very latest equipment, but it's also in, involved in long-distance intelligence work at the other end of the world. So, okay, so they're, they're now it is inevitable. They're on a collision course. So, as in the more familiar campaigns of World War II, the Japanese are relying on speed and initiative. And their plan is essentially the same as in the Sino-Japanese War. Japan launches a surprise attack on the Russian fleet anchored at Lushan, Port Arthur, on the night of the 8th of February, and the battle lasts for two days. Japanese forces also land at Incheon and move north to cross into Manchuria and the Yellow River. Now, Russia's leadership is divided. The, the Tsar's uncle, 
Admiral Alexeyev, this commander-in-chief, and he is completely inexperienced in warfare. Just before we take this story further, can I just give you a tiny little absolutely delicious fact about uh, Admiral Alexeyev, right? I mean, he's, he's a great strategist. Not really. He's an inexperienced warrior <laughs> to the point where he's scared of horses, William. So when he inspects the Russian cavalry, he insists on doing it on foot because he won't ride a horse to look at them. So uh, the in, ideal in man the to, to, to inspect I mean, he's perfect. Armies. So yeah. you, you can see the runes are not good <laughs> for, for the Russian endeavour. With the Russians in disarray, Japanese forces move northwards. And Russia has a whole series of losses. There are three Japanese armies converging on Laojiang, Manchuria's second city, on the 26th of August. And Russian forces are inflicted heavy losses by the Japanese. Their command breaks down, their units fail to receive orders, they fall into confusion. And then you get this Battle of Shenyang, which some say is, is the largest battle of its period. You have 250,000 Japanese troops and 375,000 Russians, respectively. And Russia's defeated. It has 70,000 casualties. 20,000 Russian prisoners of war are taken. And then you get this extraordinary naval campaign when the Russians send their fleet, the Baltic fleet, all the way around to Port Arthur. Tell me about that, Anita. Yes, this Dogger Bank incident. Is that where we are leading that. us up I'm to? I mean, it, it is exactly. such a fantastic, you've got, you know, Russian agents stationed along the route. They've issued uh, reports of Japanese spies and torpedo boats everywhere. The fleet's on high alert. Which, of course, are entirely mythical. Yeah. yeah, it's not true. Uh, and it's, you know, sort of proceeding into the North Sea. The captain of the repair ship radioed that he was under torpedo attack. And then other officers are reporting sightings of mystery vessels. None of it's real. It's all <laughs> in their heads. Uh, the order's given to open fire, but searchlights uh, reveal damaged and sinking British fishing ve vessels because that's who they've been shooting. They've been shooting, <laughs> you know, it's sort of fishermen. So the Whitby fishermen. So, but you've got the Russian fleet then splitting, one group going south to the Cape of Good Hope. All the way around. I mean, it's just nuts. Just think of the geography of this. And the other going through the Suez Canal and then everybody regrouping around French Indochina where they have to keep sailing in and out of ports because, you know, they're only allowed to stay for a little while. I mean, I find this like a par parking permit situation. <laughs> international maritime law, they can only stay for 24 hours in a neutral port and then they have to hop it again. This is like trying to park outside your house to do a podcast at it. Well, uh, I know, which you managed to get a parking, parking ticket every, every time. single time, <laughs> every time. So that is sort of the, the, the backdrop to this great decisive and Pankaj, the thing that changes everything, which is the Battle of Tsushima uh, on the 27th to the 28th of May, 1905. Willie, talk us through the actual battle, because I mean, it has just been an absolutely cluster fudge <laughs> until this point. <laughs> what happens now? So you, you know how in... in Modern warfare, look at the Ukraine, for example, so much is dependent on the latest technology. To be one technological leap ahead of your rival in war mm. is always the, the crucial thing. And in this naval battle, the Japanese have managed to get the latest rangefinders. Uh, and these are supplied by a Scottish firm from Glasgow called Barr and Stroud. But I knew you'd, I knew you'd leave her in the Scots. <laughs> I just knew that was going to happen. Wait, what's a rangefinder? It's, it's a telescope that you look through, right. which has a dial which allows you to estimate the range exactly through ah. what's in focus. So you use the focusing dial to right. tell the exact range. So it's a faraway -ometer. 
is what you're it's describing. It's a faraway-ometer, as you said gotcha. briefly, but you should be in marketing <laughs> okay. uh, and arms dealing, Anita. Gotcha. And mm-hmm. uh, this Glasgow firm called Barr & Stroud have been perfecting this rangefinder, which allows gunners on ships to look out to sea and to f- estimate exactly the distance of a ship that they're firing at and mm. therefore to land a shell exactly on it. And Barr and Stroud had just managed to export to Japan something called the 1903 FA3 rangefinder, which is bought by this, this extraordinary figure, Admiral Togo, who has rearmed the Japanese fleets and got them absolutely cutting-edge technology. And the Russian fleets are, you know, 30, 40 years behind this. Mm. And so what happens is that the Japanese can sink the Russian warships at a distance of 5,500 meters and fire with incredible accuracy. And one Russian ship has the unbelievable distinction of becoming the first modern battleship sunk by gunfire alone in the first minutes of this battle. Mm. And in the minutes that follow, 11 other Russian battleships go down. The, the speed of the devastation is, is extraordinary. But the most extraordinary thing about this story is, yet again, you found a Scot. I mean, how? <laughs> Wherever we are, whenever we are in the world, that's amazing. Less surprising than me bringing a Scot <laughs> into the story is the fact that the Japanese had gone to Glasgow, researched mm-hmm. this thing, negotiated the purchase. This thing had only been invented in 1903. And in 1905, every ship in the Japanese Navy has one of these and is brought into action. And the result is accurate fire, which sinks the entire Russian Navy. Yeah. Now, Pankaj, back to you. I mean, what, what does this do to Russian <laughs> The Scottish interlude. Yes. <laughs> what, what does this actually do to, to Russia, Russia's sense of itself and everybody else's attitude towards Russia? Well, actually, like quite a lot of countries, uh, the Russians too are forced into some very urgent and harsh self-examination. And out of which, you know, comes their own um, efforts at reforming the political system of modernizing the military, you know, a process that starts in uh, immediately after 1905, and you have actually some very capable Russian uh, leaders at the time, uh, even before you know 1917, even before the great events of the ni- of 1917, you have people trying to rapidly reform Russia. But you know this is a process that is uh, happening simultaneously after 1905 across Asia and Africa where Japan's victory has demonstrated that basically everyone needs to learn very fast too the secrets of European or Western power. And if that means going all the way to Glasgow to learn the secrets of naval technology, if that means going to Germany, as the Japanese did, to learn about uh, how you know a constitutional monarchy can work or how Uh, an economic system not built upon free trade can work, well, you have to do all that. So I think the the biggest lesson from the Battle of Tsushima is not only military, it's intellectual, it's political, and it's also, you know, to use a slightly abused word, spiritual. I mean, I think, you know, with people like Gandhi, who obviously were not in any way inclined uh, towards, you know, this kind of modernization or this kind of militarization, what was really important was that Japan had regained its self-respect after being humiliated. And that was really the crucial message from, from this victory. 
Well, look, it's a good, it's a good place to take a break. Join us after the break when we find out just how this remolds, reconfigures all of these different countries' sense of themselves. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. So obviously, this is a series on Russia and the Russian Empire and the Russo-Japanese War had a huge impact on that. It played a central role in the reforms that were going to come in 1905 and the creation of the Russian Duma. But in the second half of this episode, we're actually going to focus on the impact that this war had on Asia. And then next Thursday, we'll be releasing the first of three episodes on the Russian Revolution and the end of the Russian Empire. So we'll go into full detail then on the impact that the war had on Russia and how it played into the revolution. But Pankaj, before the break, you were describing a situation where the global south, in other words, the, the non-Western chunk of the globe, suddenly sit up and realize that the West has Nikita's heel that this is a power that can be brought down. How does that affect the different regions? What happens? Well, I think, as I said, you know, the main moral that people draw from Japan's victory is that there is no reason for us to be dominated and bullied by people from, from, from the West. And that if we organize our institutions, if we organize our political systems, our economic systems, in quite the same way that Japan has done, there is no reason we cannot regain our sovereignty, our freedom, our autonomy. Japan has shown the way for all these different countries in, in different ways. Exactly. Now, how do you do it? You know, that's the that's a sort of big question. 
where do you start with something like this? Obviously, you know, so many countries are simply not in a position that Japan is in the early 20th century. They are, if not directly occupied by European imperialists, they are certainly completely dominated by them. If you know, if you're thinking of places like Java, large parts of Africa, uh, large parts of the Middle East. So how do you start? And I think for most people, it's it's like, okay, let's look at what Japan is doing. Uh, they've had a new constitution. They've had economic reforms. They've had political reforms. So let's learn from them. An emperor has become a constitutional monarch. Exactly. So instead of you know the emperor consolidating despotic authority, he is uh, you know almost a kind of you know symbolic figure, someone who kind of helps guide parliamentarians and not sort of you know this this imposing figure from the past so uh, everyone is thinking how do we how do we kind of modernize our political and economic systems and how do we set on this path so one step is let's have a new constitution Sometimes, you know, that happens very rapidly. For instance, in Persia. 1906 is a national 1906, assembly. exactly. Yeah. You've already had, you, uh, the Ottomans at this point have had a constitution, uh, which, which was, I think, sometime in the 1870s that was, that was created. Um, but it has been, more, you know, moribund for some time. So now they, re they, they revive that. And again, with the sort of emphasis on, you know, let's have, other people involved in the political process, not just the Sultan, not just, you know, some guy sitting in sitting in Istanbul. Now, Pankaj, you talk very, very interestingly in your book about a character we actually dwelt on very briefly with Eugene Rogan when we were talking about the late Ottoman period, who is Jamal al-Din al-Afghani. Tell us about him. Yes, you know, so here is another character uh, who is sort of starting to travel around the Muslim world from the mid 19th century onwards where does he start he he starts sort of you know soon after i mean i think his first kind of reported uh, uh, travels are in india soon after the mutiny and this is a very crucial period you know as you as you probably know better than just about most people we know that muslim power in india has been decisively broken the moguls have been swept aside in 1857 to 8 and he's there to observe their humiliation and to draw lessons from, from, from that whole debacle. So he's there in, immediately after 57, he goes to Afghanistan. It's not quite clear whether he's from Afghanistan or Iran. Isn't that interesting that we don't even know where he's actually exactly. from? Exactly. Very, well, very know, crucial figure. I suppose uh, we didn't really have kind of organized scholarship back then. So a lot of these details are very murky now. Uh, but anyway, we do know that he traveled through Egypt, he traveled through Ottoman Turkey, through Istanbul, he was in Iran, he was in Tehran, plotting against uh, the, the, the Shah. He was in practically every major Muslim country with one central message that if you don't educate yourself, if you don't organize, you're going to be further humiliated by Western powers. And so, you know, Al-Afghani really is in many ways the first original figure of what we now know as political Islam. Because he's, he, he's not attached to one state or one ruler. He's moving across the entire Islamic world, wanting a revival, wanting to go back to the roots and, and a re-strengthening and a rebirth. Exactly. And, you know, one of the, one of the advantages of having traveled through such a vast realm 
is that you can see that the problems of uh, Muslim societies are not necessarily inherent in some sort of, you know, local factors on some one particular society. The main source of the problem is foreign occupation, is imperialist plundering. And if you don't organize against that, no amount of, you know, tinkering here and there is going to do it. So I think he's the, he's the sort of first figure from that period to kind of focus on just exactly what Western imperialism is doing to these countries. And he actually gets into the Ottoman high command, doesn't he? He's living in the, uh, in the palace in, uh, is it Domabache or uh, the Yildiz uh, the palace? You know, yeah. he has a great talent for intrigue, uh, for conspiracy. So he manages to insinuate himself into ruling classes wherever he goes. It's not just, you know, Istanbul or Tehran also in, 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 in Cairo, he's sort of immediately after arriving there, he's talking to officials, he's talking to intellectuals, he's talking to writers, he's starting magazines. Um, so a lot of what we know as Islamic modernism, indirectly or directly, is related to his travels and to his doings and to his sayings. So Extreme. again, I mean, you know, really obscure figure even mm. even today, but when you think about it, He's had a much more enduring influence than Karl Marx, you know, another great exile that we think of of the of the nineteenth century. I can think of other examples, but Al Afghani remains uh, really completely unknown compared to these some, some these other figures. Yeah, I mean, you you talked before the break about there actually being a, a sort of almost spiritual awakening. I can't. You, you had a very elegant phrase for it that it wasn't just a, a notion of national pride, but there's there's something more than that. There's an innate. This is who we are, and this is what it means. Does that appear evident in Al Afghani and and Rabindranath Tagore is another person that you mentioned in your book as being really inspired by the events of 1905. Absolutely. I mean, I you know I think uh, you know the role of humiliation is very underrated in uh, geopolitics, international affairs, definitely in domestic politics, you know. I think it's a very good point, Pankaj. If you look at so much of, of recent history, whether it's exactly. what's happening now in Russia or the, 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 the Germans in World War II or what's happening now in India, so much of it is related to past humiliations. And, and if you belong, as many of the people I talk about in this book uh, do, if, if you belong to the highest caste or highest class in your own country and culture, then that humiliation is obviously sharper. Mm. It's, it's, it's felt more deeply, you know, which is the case with Alav Ghani, which is the case with Rabindranath Tagore, which is the case with Liang Chichao. Oh, tell, tell us about Liang Chichao, because I, I guarantee that that's not a name that people will recognize. Well, no at all in the West. Yeah. Who is he? Where, where's he born? Actually, uh, thanks to this book, Penguin Classics have commissioned a collection of his writings. It's coming out in a few weeks. Uh, so, you know, we'll know a little Brilliant. bit more about what mm. he wrote, what he thought about his travels through Europe, through America. Who, I mean, who, who was he? Was he? Essentially, I mean, who was he? He, was, he was a member of the China sort of Mandarin class, very much, you know, brought up in a particular tradition of being a bureaucrat, of being, you know, part of the part of the sort of gentry, the Chinese gentry. But aware in the late 19th century that China was in a terrible way, it was being bullied around by Japan, which was nibbling away at Chinese territory, and also the regime, the Qing dynasty, simply didn't have it in them to confront Japan or to modernize the country. So he's 
you know, trying again. He's traveling around the world. He's going to various places. He's 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 hanging out with overseas Chinese, which eventually become a big source of support for him. And he's also spending a lot of time in Japan to somehow bring together a like-minded, you know, community of people devoted to rescuing China from its fallen state. And in this endeavor, you know, he's he's sort of I think he he dies sometime in in 1940, 1939 or 40. Again, this is a man who has massive impact. He sets up magazines, he sets up a publishing imprint, uh, he meets Tagore, I mean he meets everyone. Someone like Mao Zedong grows up reading Liang Chichao, revering Liang Chichao, Xiao Enlai, any Chinese leader, any Chinese intellectual, any Chinese writer you name, they all basically were inspired and influenced by Liang Chichao. Another, you know, we have not a clue about... What about Sun Yat-sen, um, Pankaj? Is he reading him? He's a more man of, a man of action. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. Tell us who he is, first of all. Well, he's, you know, again, one of the sort of people deeply, obviously, uh, affected by the European encroachments upon, upon China. You know, there's one particular ch- part of China that sends a lot of people out of the country you know, as far as the United States, as far as the, the Caribbean, because the situation there is pretty intolerable. And he's one of those people, overseas Chinese, who kind of develop a Chinese national consciousness while spending a lot of their life abroad. And again, you know, for them, if you remember how sort of racist uh, the United States was with both Chinese and Japanese immigrants. So you are kind of not only suffering from the fact that your country is in a terrible way. His brother was in the Californian gold rush, am I right? Exactly, exactly. And is a coolie, is, is being yeah, bullied by... Yeah, you have this yeah. very large uh, Chinese contingent abroad, and Chinese nationalism really first flourishes within these overseas communities. And of course, you know, they have more money, and so they are able to organize. And Liang, Chichao, Sun Yat-sen, they all become part of this network of Chinese nationalists abroad who were conspiring, who were plotting a kind of national renaissance. And then finally, they have their moment, you know, very soon in 1911. 1911, they overthrew the emperor. They, they, mm. they overthrew the emperer and Sun Yat-sen comes into his own, you know, becomes a major figure yeah, in Chinese politics. And of course, you know, in 1919, the Chinese Communist Party is formed. These are also people, you know, a lot of people in, in the Chinese Communist Party are people who spent time in Japan, who went to Japan, again, to educate themselves in, in the ways of uh, of Japanese power. I mean, it, it's really interesting that you name, it's, it's almost like a waterfall of unfamiliar sounds, all these people, because, you know, here, when you think of India and you think of, of you know, the 1900s, it's Gandhi, Nehru. I mean, they dominate. I mean, how, how affected were they by the, what happened between Japan and Russia? Actually, both of them. You know, ja- Nehru uh, was traveling. He was on a train in, in, in England when he read about... On his way to Harrow, wasn't he? On his way, indeed, to his uh, private school and was absolutely delighted, as he, as he records in his uh, autobiography. You know, Gandhi, Tagore, these are, again, people who were not at all invested in the idea of, uh, you know, war or military modernization or anything, but they all were deeply enthused by this. And, you know, a lot of Indians at the time um, who were not, at again, you know, at, at sort of thinking much about resistance to the British Empire, how to go about it. You have to remember, you know, the the... the 
Indian National Congress, what became the major anti-colonial force in India, was still in a pretty rudimentary state in 1905. And so the victory in many ways galvanized this whole sort of national consciousness. And for again, for Gandhi, the immediate lesson was, look, Japan has shown us that we can earn our self-respect. So, you know, mm. kind of drawing a very simple lesson from it. And of course, you know, for Gandhi, self-respect and, you know, creating creating a culture, creating an economy whereby you're self-reliant, self-sufficient, these are these were his lifelong goals. In effect, Curzon was absolutely right. I mean, you know, everything that he said was going to be a problem with this became a problem. Absolutely. I mean, he he really, I mean, he really saw what was happening, which was a kind of moral and spiritual earthquake. And what is this? I mean, I think you know, we talk about the global south today and how power is shifting from the west to the east, and Chinese nationalism, Indian nationalism. Uh, indeed, Russian nationalism, uh, these are going to be major players in, in the next few decades. But I think if you think about how were these nationalisms formed, like who were the people even thinking about nationalist identity? How did they start? It all really started in the early 20th century. And it's, again, it's very hard for us to imagine how much ground is passed in such a short time. This is 1905. It's only 42 years later that the British are out of India and the whole colonial period is beginning to be rolled up. And again, you have to remember the crucial player in the expulsion of European imperialists from large parts of Asia is Japan. So Japan plays, I mean, I think, you know, again, we have to think more and more about the role Japan plays in world politics, especially in the first half of the 20th century, because there is that 1905 moment. And then, of course, there is the, there is the Second World War when Japan, with the help of Asian collaborators everywhere in Java, in Burma, drive out the British and the Dutch and the French from their old possessions. This is such a crucial point, Pankaj. I was very struck when I went to Java last year that still today, when you go to the museums in Java, they talk about the Japanese liberation of, of Indonesia, of Java, from the Dutch. And in the West, we're so brought up with, with the, the certainties and the simplicities of good and evil, Nazis bad, British and Americans good, that we still look on the, the Japanese as, as part of the, uh, the enemy, part of the Axis forces uh, who, who we overthrew. But there are large parts of Asia which still see them as liberators, aren't there? Including India. Including India. Just talk us through, Pankaj, in, in this day and age where all these major powers seem to be doing something of a square dance, the fact that the West doesn't recognize these catalysts for you know, the, the, the thinking of the, the global South is, is an issue. But what about the way in which these countries now are exerting their identity, their muscularity, their nationalism. I mean, what, what, what is happening with that these days? Well, you know, I think, again, there are people already talking about just what shape the assertion of Asian nationalism would take. There are people extremely worried about this. There is Rabin Natagore, who becomes a great critic of Japanese nationalism and then later Chinese nationalism. You know, he goes to China and he's mocked by Chinese intellectuals for coming from a slave country, as they call India. Uh, people in like Tagore are trying to tell the Chinese that please, you know, don't follow Japan, don't be militaristic, don't be imperialistic. And he's mocked wherever he goes in China. This is a very interesting episode that is covered in this book. And, you know, back in India too, he's warning against 
extreme nationalism of the kind that we see in India today. So there are voices, even back then, Liang Chichao is another, you know, the most interesting commentary on the, the Russo-Japanese war in 1905 was provided by Tolstoy. Who we did an episode on this week. He covered the war, he wrote about it, and took from it the conclusion that, you know, this uh, business of uh, imitating the West and imitating its means to firepower, greater firepower, this is going to end really badly. So when you ask me that question about, so these, these, these countries now are preening themselves and, and flexing their military muscle, where is it all going? Well, I think, unfortunately, history tells us that we need to be extremely anxious about where we are going with this kind of scenario where, again, what Japan did in the past, so many Asian countries feel that they can only be respected, they can only achieve dignity and self-respect if they are feared. And, you know, this is what the Chinese are doing. This is what, uh, to a certain extent, the Indians are doing. And again, this is an, this is an extremely worrying scenario. Pankaj Mishra. That is a very powerful, if incredibly depressing place to end. <laughs> we thank you very Brilliant, much. That is that is it from Empire for this episode. But we'll be back. Till then, it's goodbye from me, Anita Arnon. Goodbye from me, William Durrimple. <laughs>